Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises to manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Weiss. Hey, guys. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here at the ISM show in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, and Lou, our co-host, is going to introduce our guest this morning. Uh, thank you, Tim. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Stephen Melnick, Professor of Operations and Supply Chain Management of uh, Michigan State University. I presume that's in Michigan. You got it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. And, My pleasure, uh, Lou. Uh, we'll uh, have a, a session here of uh, learning a little bit about how Michigan State handles uh, all the issues and regarding uh, employees and skills and talent and education and so on. So uh, do, you, do you have a, a, an opening statement that you'd like to address or should we get right into the show? No, I'm just going to simply say that a lot of stuff we'll be talking about today is really the result of research that we're doing at Michigan State University in the Supply Chain Group, which is right now engaged in a major initiative to understand where's the future of the supply chain going, what are the things that are going to enable it to go forward, and what are the things that are going to hold us back? And the reason we're doing that is because there's one of the top supply chain programs in, in the country. The, you don't teach people about the past. You teach them about the future. Um, Kane, uh, Keynes, who was an economist, once was asked, do you think about the future, the present or the future? And he said, the future, because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. Um, Regarding uh, manufacturing and the way it was and the way it is, uh, how would you identify then and now? You know, that has that is an interesting question because there's a lot of interest right now in reshoring. And what people are assuming is we're going to see jobs came back, coming back to the states that were essentially like the jobs that we saw in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, let me give you an idea. There's a fundamental shift. Um, when I graduated from high school, and according to my kids in the Ice Age, uh, <laughs> I, I graduated in Hamilton, Ontario. In Hamilton, we had Stelco and DeFasco. And not that far away from us was uh, Oakville with the Ford assembly plant. Many of my colleagues, when they graduated, many of the kids I went to school with, what they decided to do is, as soon as they graduated, they put their applications into the FESCO, Stelco, and became assemblymen at Ford. And it was low-skilled, repetitive, but highly paid. And their idea was that's the job that they're going to have for the rest of their lives. The 1990s came, and a lot of those people found themselves without jobs when we outsourced. We, uh, we outsourced. Now we're starting to see work coming back. Why is work coming back to the States? Because we're starting to find that people are looking for product that's responsive, quality, innovative, has things like sustainability. This is a demand for a product that's being driven by technology, it's being driven by customer demand, and it means that when the people, if you want to be involved in this new world, you've got to be highly skilled, you've got to be proficient with computers, more importantly, you've got to be able to talk with people outside of your other employees. You've got to talk with top management. You've got to talk with engineering. You've got to, you've got to be able to tell them what works and doesn't work. And you've got to keep training yourself. 
because you know here's something to think about. There was a study that was recently done, and they came up to this with the interesting finding that an engineer who takes a four-year degree, by the time he graduates, half of the stuff he's been told is obsolete. Think about that over a lifetime. Wow. Well, that's the way the growth of technology has taken us today. Uh, you know, they come out with a new iPhone every eight months, uh, and it's uh, it's going to continue that way. It's not going to ever go back to the way it was. And uh, therefore, uh, and, and I, I've gone and done a lot of traveling recently overseas, uh, and the overseas markets are still into buying American. It's a quality product, and we have to keep up with that with regards to skilled labor. Yeah, and here's the point, and what's really helping us with reshoring and the bringing back of manufacturing is people in China, people in India, they want to live like we do. And that's a critical factor. Um, if you think about what's happening, I've seen studies coming out about China that they're estimating, especially on the east coast of China, you know, Shanghai, etc., Guangzhou province, uh, they're estimating that by 2015 or 2016, the salaries, the wages you pay a worker there are going to be equivalent to what you pay a worker in the States. Now, what's interesting is that what has what we've done in the States, and this is why this is a new manufacturing, is the pro rate of productivity is exceeding, the, in many cases, the cost increases by paying higher wages. And what's happening, the irony is, work, work is coming back to the States because we're becoming the low-cost center. Isn't that ironic? Took, techno took, took technology to do that. That's part of it. It also took the fact that people now recognize that you're not simply buying cost. And in fact, cost is becoming almost like a given. What are you buying? You're buying responsiveness. You're buying the ability that if you place an order today, you'll get something very quickly. There are companies that are coming out in the States, like Cafe Press, where you can design a product, a mug, a keychain. They have a myriad of products on their catalogs. You can design it online, and they will deliver it if you want to next day. Mm -hmm. I've heard of a company that they will allow you to design candies to your specifications and you can print them get them delivered next day they're using technology and that means they have to have people who can live with this technology Stephen, is this a different pace for michigan state university you mentioned that an engineer half of what he learns by the time he graduates is obsolete is this a different pace for the university oh. to teach uh yes and the reason it's becoming because what's happening is the rate of technology is becoming faster and faster. We're starting to see Moore's law being applied, not simply to high tech, but also to how we view problems. And if that's the case, if here's an example. I know of so many programs out there, there are university programs in supply chain, they're teaching lean, and that's everything for them. Guess what? Lean is nowadays almost a given. It's not a competitive advantage. You've got to be able to know when and when and to use one of these technologies and when not to use one of these technologies. And that's the challenge. Um, we, at Michigan State, we talk, we teach our students, and we work with companies to manage what we refer to as the management paradox. That is, in the short term, you manage for stability. In the long term, you plan for change. 
And we want to make sure, we want to be able to anticipate the changes so, uh, so that our students and the people we work with understand not only where we are, but where we're going to. And to do that, you're going to have to work with an environment that's faster and faster. So that's going to affect education in delivery, in content, and in the concepts we teach. And do you see most of that being delivered at the classroom level on screen rather than printed book? You couldn't print books fast enough. You know, you're right, and there's, uh, there's a new concept coming out in books, which is, I forget the exact title, but it's almost like it's a, it's a content-embedded book where you have a book and you have links built into the book. And what you do is you use a QR reader, and they give you to a website, and they show you the latest developments in the book. But, you know, what, you, what you're really bringing up is the fact that this technology is not only creating a demand for a new workforce, it's also creating a demand for a new method of education. And the reason being is because uh, education costs are going up, and we're starting to see this, the concepts of MOOCs, uh, which are massive online courses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what MOOCs are doing is they're starting to challenge how we teach. And the other reason is that they're, for many of the new students who are millenniums, it's the way they learn. So what you're seeing is manufacturing is experiencing a revolution, education is experiencing a revolution, and in revolutions there are winners and losers. Right. You know, in my neck of the world down in Atlanta, Georgia, you see a lot of vacant strip malls and a lot of strip malls under construction, even though one a mile away is vacant. Um, so they're taking enormous risk. In the university world, and you're talking about these massive online courses, is there going to be a need for uh, all of the land-grant colleges to be as big as they are and broad as they are in the future, or are we going to see consolidation? That's a good question, and that's one of the challenges. I just read a report that came out, I think it was in The Economist, and one of the things that they brought out in this report is that it may not be the large land-grant schools which get hit in the neck, not, not like the Michigan States or the University of Wisconsin's or um, you know the schools which were developed under that philosophy. The schools that are going to get hit are the regional schools mm. because what's going to happen, they don't have the resource base, right? and they're going to be in competition. Somebody brought up a statistic to me. They said if Harvard was to come in, and let's say you are, you're in Atlanta, Georgia, or let's say you're out in one of the areas – let's say 50, 60 miles from Atlanta. And you can go to, let's say, I'll pick a cause. I won't. I can get into trouble. You pick one of the small regional schools. Mm-hmm. And you can pay anywhere, let's say, for sixty to $70,000 for an MBA. And I can give you that MBA, same MBA over on online for the same price and have it come from Harvard. Which would you take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very true be very competitive. And the thing that you're doing, too, is that you're not simply conveying how you teach. You're conveying content. It, what people are really becoming aware of is that you've got two things going on in schools. You've got, res- you've got delivery and you've got content. Mm-hmm. If you don't master both of those, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Because, it's, as I told people, you either create it or you lease it. When it comes to knowledge, you either create it or you lease it. And you'd rather be in the business creating it. And many of these smaller schools are not that good at creating really forth, kind of forward-seeing knowledge. Okay. And at Michigan State University, what 
You're here at the ISM conference. Yeah. Why is Michigan State University at the ISM conference? Because as a program in supply chain, we believe, first of all, let's be realistic. Supply chain came out of the business community. Mm-hmm. Piece of trivia. Do you realize that the first time the term supply chain management was used was in Financial Times? I think it was June 4th, June the 4th, 1982. A guy was describing the integrated system that Shell had was developing, and in that article he used the term supply chain. So a lot of the developments we see in the supply chain come out of the business community. Okay. Research, if it's going to be effective, has got to address not only be published in academic journals, but it's got to be acted on by practitioners, by the people of like the people that you see walking around ISM. And what we do here is when coming here, we try to get a sense of what are the concerns. Mm. We ask the question of ourselves on a regular basis, what is it that keeps these people up at night and why? And the other thing we're doing is we're getting validation um, on what we're presenting. Is there value to our approach, our thinking? And when you put those two things together, you start to see why schools like Michigan State, schools like Arizona State or Penn State are doing so well because – by working closely with the practitioner community, we ensure that we're not simply creating stuff which is intellectually rigorous, but also stuff which has an impact. Okay. And now, go on. I'm sorry. Uh, in talking with Tom Deary, who's CEO of ISM, we spoke with Thomas Nett, and we're hearing this number of three to 600,000 vacant jobs in manufacturing. Do the students going at to Michigan State as they go through your courses realize that there's that kind of opportunity out there for them? Yeah, uh, and the reason that they do may not be in manufacturing, but it's in supply chain overall. Yes, okay. And the reason that they do that is because we're becoming a supply chain enterprise. Uh, I sit on the board of directors for Apex, and I'm the only academic. And Apex began as an operations management manufacturing society. And they're telling you right up front that their future is not in manufacturing, it's in delivery. And that means not only that's the supply chain. So there are opportunities. People come to Michigan State, and we have a lot of students who are coming to Michigan State from overseas because they want to get to know what we're teaching our Ameri- the American student that they can apply in China, in India, mm-hmm. in Pakistan. So, yes, uh, we see it all the time. And, in fact, I'm going to make a statement. Uh, that number is going to grow because you're going to see not only a demand for the functionally type supply chain people, the scheduler, the people who works with tool and die, but you're also going to see an increasing demand for the guy, the person who can interface with top management. Because increasingly, and you see it in Apple, uh, firms are starting to recognize that supply chain it's not It's not a simply a good idea to have them at the table when they do strategy. It's required. Mm-hmm. And that's that's becoming the future. So it's going to grow. On a different uh, tack, uh, Stephen, uh, once you have uh, your, your new millennium train and, mm. and new skills and technology and so on, supply chain, manufacturing and so on how do you keep them you know you're, you're getting into something really really interesting um, both at Michigan State and at Apex we've been kind of struggling with the issue of what makes the millennium student so different from the Gen Xer and the baby bloomer 
And the reality is they're really different. Uh, they learn online. Uh, they have they they see themselves as part of communities. When they go into a job, they don't want to be in the same job. Like remember, I described the person, the guy who graduated with me out of Glendale High School in Hamilton, Ontario. He expected to go on and get a position at Stelco or an assembly position. And he worked on the assembly line in Ford, and for the rest of his life, that's everything he was going to do. The gen the the babe, the millenniums, when they sit down, you know what they want? The next job. They want variety. They want you to keep training them. And if they can't get it at their current position, guess what they're going to do? They're going to move. Now, why is that so important? It means, um, here's the reality. Americans are talking about the fact that there's a skill shortage. And that we have to go to places like Germany, which has a very well-developed program for developing the skilled craftsmen. And then they're, they're going to look at that process and say, the challenge is for us to get enough workers. No. The challenge is first to get enough skilled workers. The second is to keep them. And it's not enough to pay them. It's you've got to pay them and you've got to give them variety. You've got to treat them differently. And that's the one thing that we're starting to see very clearly. It's not that the Gen Xers, ha sorry, that the Millenniums have a feeling of entitlement, that they think they're good, etc. It's they view things differently. They're looking for variety, challenge. They want to come in and feel that they're doing something great. And you know what the funny thing is? We're starting to see companies who realize that when it comes to supply chain people coming up from Michigan State, they're giving rotation programs. Now we're starting to see the same logic being applied by companies to get these workers, these people to come in and not only to be manufacturing people, but to come in and to stay at their companies. Because if you don't keep them, you've just got to replace them. Sure. It's a, it's a never-ending, uh, revolving door. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in our uh, metals company, All Metals and Forge, uh, we find that uh, we get new people in, for example, into the quality department, and then we send them out for quality training, and they get a certificate. And uh, that certificate is all-powerful. It's very meaningful to them. And it wasn't that way 20, 30 years ago. So we're seeing, in our own small way, exactly what you're talking about. And so the challenge, what you're really picking up is a really a multi-stage challenge. The first thing is, how do we get people in public school, not high school, in public school, the grade schools, to become aware that there's this great opportunity. Because they think of manufacturing the same way that you see. Have you ever seen the uh, Ch Ch Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times? Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, bits and pieces. Yeah, bits and pieces. You know, the very, or, you know, the very kind of regulated, charged, very you know, disciplined, very dirty environment. It's not that. It's clean. It's fluid. It's intellectually stimulating. We've got to get people to understand it's not your father's manufacturing world, guy. And so we've got to do it at the early level, at the grade schools. We've got to make sure that they're aware of it at the public schools. And then once they get into universities, once they get into universities or into community colleges, we've got to make sure that companies understand that it's in their best interest to develop an environment where we keep them once we get them. It costs too much to replace them. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen some of the costs? Uh, three years ago, I did a consulting job 
with a pharmaceutical company located in North Carolina. They mentioned the fact that it takes them about 18 weeks just to get a person to do quality management trained. Then it's another 9 to 18 weeks before they're considered up to speed. So you think about that. That means if you train a person who's up to speed and that person decides to leave, you're not just simply looking for the new guy, the new person. You're looking for someone who's got to be brought in and then they've got to be trained and then they've got to be brought up to speed. And that's a big, big cost. Sure, nine weeks of training and then they don't work out. Mm -hmm. But supposing they do work out, how do you keep them? Um, you know, here's something to think about. It's this challenge that you're picking up. It requires us to rethink not only education, but also how we manage the workplace. Variety, uh, opportunities, community. All of those are things that we s we're starting to see millenniums talk about. Uh, Stephen, in uh, this conference, was there any one or two things that you heard or picked up on that you're going to take back to Michigan State? Oh, hell yes. Again, I did. Sorry. It's, t it's just because initially uh, it goes back to my heritage. I, I'm originally, I was in the Canadian Army many, many years ago, so I picked that up. Anyway, the first thing I'm going to pick up is this notion that there's a lot more emphasis here on culture than I've seen in the past. Okay. And that's important. That means that not only do you manage people from a systems perspective, from a data perspective, but you have to also understand the culture of it. Because, you know, if you ever go to Ford, Ford has a wonderful sign. And the sign says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and I think you're trying to see an awareness. In fact, there was a session this morning on the CEO level of where people were talking about this notion of, culture having to be considered. Number two, you're starting to see more emphasis on our supply chain as being strategic. Okay. And, and that is really different. Um, you know, in the past, if you went to a conference like this, all of the sessions would be on how to generate or foster bottom line growth. Bottom line growth is cost reduction. I'm seeing more and more presentations that are dealing with top-line growth. And mm -hmm. to do top-line, you have to be strategic. And the next thing, the third thing I'm picking up is the notion that the rate of technology, it's going so fast that the challenge is how do you keep people who are professional buyers, purchasing managers, supply chain managers, how do you keep them current? In a world where the you know the the pace of technology is just accelerating every day, right? That will be very challenging. It will certainly be challenging for manufacturers. It'll be challenging for universities. And Stephen, we want to thank you for coming here from Michigan State University, being at the show, and also for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Take care now. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We have a very special guest with us today we're excited to introduce, and my co-host, Lou Weiss, will introduce him. Lou? I'd like to introduce uh, George Crowder from Sto uh, Storeroom Solutions, uh, located in Radnor, Pennsylvania. 
George, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, how's the show been for you? This show has really gone very well. We've had a lot of prospects and a lot of interest in what in what uh, in what we do. Tell us what you do. Our Storeroom Solutions is a very unique provider of all categories of what we call MRO supplies, which is maintenance, repair, and operating material. And we're unique in that just about all of our revenue comes from being on site inside of our clients' uh, facilities. Uh, most of our clients are manufacturers uh, of, of products. Um, also, we are involved with institutions, uh, hospitals, universities. But most of our concentration is on with, with the manufacturing uh, segment of the economy. Uh, when you say that you uh, take over their uh, storeroom, what, what, be, be more specific. Tell me about that. Okay. Um, if you consider that all of the purchasing uh, that a particular facility does, what their total spend is, you can cut it into three categories, uh, which is the production parts, the material that goes into their product, uh, capital expenditures, and then there's MRO, maintenance, repair, and operating supplies. And every facility has an MRO storeroom, and that storeroom represents a very small part of what they spend, maybe just 6 to 7 to 8 percent. But in reality, it creates upwards of 70, 80 percent of all of the purchasing and receiving activity. Mm-hmm. And, and why is that, George? It, it's only a six, seven, eight percent spend, but it's a tenfold increase in purchasing activity. Because the com- companies will have a lot of concentration on the high spend. That's where most of the people in this organization, IS, ISM, that's where they spend most of their time. The function of MRO is generally ignored. Uh, because of that percentage. It's a lot, a lot of parts, a lot of activity, a lot of low value, and that's why that percentage is low. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we purport is that if you are in the manufacturing business, let's just say you're, you're manufacturing forklift trucks, and that's, that's your expertise. The, the trucks that you build are excellent, and that's your core competency your core competency does not extend to running a hardware store. And by definition, it's a MRO store. Well, it's a store. It's, it's, it's like a Home Depot. So that's not the business that you're in if you are a manufacturer of forklift trucks. So what we say is that you should outsource that. You should uh, move away from that cost, the cost that can be recovered, and allow an expert to run that storeroom. So let me just uh, clarify it for myself. Uh, your client has a storeroom, and he's, he's uh, struggling to make sure he has inventory. He's got employees that uh, are ordering parts and so on. And what you do is you come in there, you take over the storeroom operation. The inventory that he has is blown off, and at some point it's all your inventory, and you take full responsibility 
that there's always going to be parts there. Uh, there's always going to be uh, uh, no issues with delays and so on. Uh, well, that was well said. Do you want to be a salesman for us? <laughs> <laughs> when I, was, when I was, retire. That was right on. <laughs> um, this is the way it should be. And comp- many companies, our clients, uh, have recognized this. Uh, one of the things that has to happen is that you have to have key performance indicators, and those key performance indicators have to be uh, realized in order to sustain the, the, the program. Um, one of the most important things that has to happen, and one of the most important values that comes, comes out of being on site is connecting the storeroom to the needs of maintenance reliability. Uh, maintenance invests a lot of, lot of money, a lot of uh, activity in various maintenance reliability programs. They want to be lean. They want to produce a reliable plant so the plant can produce a reliable product. A reliable product means that somebody buys it more than once. So if you have an unreliable storeroom and that unreliability will demean, will will distract from the goals of maintenance. So as a part of what we do in reducing total cost of ownership, we make sure that the storeroom is connected, is coordinated with the needs of maintenance. So if maintenance has a project and the project requires a part if they go to the storeroom what happens if the storeroom doesn't have it then they have downtime so the unreliability of a storeroom affects the total cost uh, of the product when a storeroom is unreliable which most of them are when they're run by the company themselves then maintenance and various kinds of people will substock They'll pull out more than they need, uh, and they'll they'll put it in substocks just to just to make sure that they have the part. And you can't blame them. Uh, if a prob- if the program and uh, a storm was run properly uh, by some by a company who that's their expertise, then those substocks disappear. The duplications in the supply train disappears. Um, to, again, to reach a total, an optimum total cost of ownership situation. George, I'm sorry, Lou. Uh, George, explain to me when you say it's your inventory. You know, you burn off their inventory and it becomes your inventory. What's the advantage to my company to have your inventory and my MRO shop? Okay, there, there's really two cost benefits, uh, financial and non-financial. Financial benefits comes from reducing the price of the part. And then to answer your question, uh, reducing the investment in inventory. You, if you can reduce and recover the dollars in inventory, uh, then you have uh, more dollars for projects. You have the cost of money that you're saved. And it's okay to reduce inventory. The financial disciplines in, in companies are always put in pressure to reduce the inventory, recover the cash. Well, if you reduce the inventory and now you have downtime, then there's no benefit to reducing it. 
So what happens is that when we start a, a store, uh, we have an implementation plan that is that uh, that relates specifically specifically to the, uh, the the needs the particular needs of the plant, and all the inventory that's in the storeroom is in fact the, uh, the clients. Now we start we begin to issue their material, and we determine what's repetitive. As that material is issued, we now commingle our inventory to the point where it is supported. The, the fill rates are up in the 98, 99% range. When the last of their inventory is issued and our inventory is now issued, that's when we begin to invoice them for that, for what is, for what is taken from stock. Well, it seems like a huge advantage if it's a five, six, seven percent spend, and they're freeing up five, six, seven percent capital when they shift over to your inventory. Is that right? Well, actually, they're, they're, it's it's much more than that. If you have a a, a truism, if if you have a three million dollar MRO spend, and again, I always say, what's your definition of MRO? Because it varies from company to company. Mm -hmm. If you have a three million dollar spend. Most always, you will have an inventory of four or five million. In other words, here's another reason not to be in this business, because your your turn is a negative inventory turn. If you want to say, if you want to talk about a successful store, look at look at Home Depot. I bet their inventory turn is way up six, seven, eight percent. It has to be for a profitable situation. But here we are with a negative inventory turn. Duplications in in uh, in stock, people stocking outside the storeroom because it's unreliable. I can go on and on and on. How much time do we have? I got <laughs> you're, you're, you're doing good. I have a question for you. Uh, your your software that manages the inventory. Uh, do you do analysis of what is their usage? so that you can keep the inventory levels low uh, for based, based on the needs uh, as opposed to the uh, company that you're working with may not have been doing an analysis of their inventory flow. You're touching on something that is critical, uh, meaning that we need the cooperation of all of the disciplines those people who re, who will designate what the inventory level is are mostly maintenance directors of maintenance uh, engineers, and they always want more inventory, uh, be, and, and rightfully so because of their experience. Whereas uh, in, a, in our situation, we work with, uh, with with maintenance engineering and come up with an optimum uh, min-max situation. Again, one of the KPIs is fill rates. We'll be 100% on critical spares. We'll be 98, 99% on overall with all of the fill rates. No storeroom that's operated by a company themselves, no storeroom can vouch, can, can hit those numbers. And, so, they, and they don't hit those numbers because I guess if they're uh, you know, kind of on the back seat, the back burner, if you will, 
they're not getting the kind of uh, support that they need within the organization? Is that, is that what you see? Well, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll, I'll talk in general terms. Okay. Most store rooms are not coordinated with the needs of maintenance. Uh, there's, there's really four disciplines uh, that are involved. Finance. Finance normally wants less inventory and, by the way, buy it at a cheaper price. Purchasing's uh, mantra is to buy it, buy less, buy less, and pay less for it. So they they go out on quote. Engineering, engineering will is, is always looking to make improvements, and as a result of that, will put new parts in, and that affects if the old parts are now obsolete, uh, are obsoleted, then the new parts increase inventory, and then there's maintenance. Because of their bad experience and not having the parts there, will want more and more and more inventory. So, what success requires is a coordination and agreement from all of those disciplines to move forward together. And to answer your question, that in most companies does not exist when the storeroom is 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 in house. Sometimes purchasing is in charge of it. Sometimes maintenance. Sometimes even even finance is in charge. And they have different ideas. They have different uh, directions as to what their goals are. Our company, when we go on site, we get the goals in line. Everybody has to agree. And we and and if everybody doesn't agree, you you have a good chance to fail. And we we can recognize that. We will recognize when a program is in danger. Uh, someone asked me, from my experience, to write down how many ways, uh, how many ways w- w- is a can a program be defeated? And I said, I don't know. I, I've never really uh, thought about writing them down, and I did. So I got the 35. <laughs> I got the 35 without even thinking. And so I went to 50 and threw five more in for good measure. <laughs> and they are actually things that happen. So our experience, we will recognize when these things are going to happen, and we can avoid them. So our success rate is just pretty fantastic because of this experience. And the, and the dedication. We don't have any other source of revenue. We have to make it work. Okay. George, you, see, you seem to have the... Uh, the handle on this uh, very well, and uh, I know there are other companies, other competitors that you have out there. And uh, how long have you been doing this? Well, I started a company in 1971. I was only eight years old. Now I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, uh, so you can say we built that business. Uh, I sold it in '94. They and stayed with them for a while. I retired for a while, and then Storm Solutions came along and asked me to uh, to market, to, just to market. Well, and it's and it's just I just love it. It's just a wonderful experience. Well, and, retirement uh, is an ugly word, so we won't talk about that. But I am going to ask you one more question. Sure. If any of our listeners want to be able to get in touch with your company, could you give us your URL address? The um, it's it's storeroomsolutions.com, and me personally would be G Crowder K R A U T E R 
at storeboomsolutions.com. Real quickly as we wrap up here, George, before we go to a commercial break, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before we uh, uh, go to commercial? Yeah, I I believe that um, if most companies are not not aware of the values that can be released from, from MRO, uh, most companies will just say it is what it is, and we have to walk by it. It's a lo- it's a money losing situation. It's a drain on their profits. And if they had a manufacturing function that was not performing well, was a drain on the profits. They would change it or get rid of it. And yet, most companies put up with the situation that exists with an unreliable storeroom. So what, what I would leave the, everybody with is think about it. Think about it. Look at it as an opportunity. And, and the, uh, uh, no matter what you do, there is value to be released, and it should be acted upon. George, well said, and we really appreciate you spending the time with us. And uh, hopefully our listeners will pick up your words and uh, act on them. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I think certainly if there's an opportunity to free up some cash within an organization, this is uh, this is a great one. Thank you very much for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>